This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be speaking with Brooke McCorkle Okazaki about her book, Shonen Knife's Happy Hour, Food, Gender, Rock and Roll, uh, which is part of the 33 and a half uh, history and culture of music series, uh, which is out from Bloomsbury Academic in 2021. Shonen Knife's Happy Hour is a joyful romp through the career of the internationally successful Japanese trio Shonen Knife. The book focuses on the intersection of food, gender, and music, as the title suggests, uh, for these pioneers of what Okazaki calls Jose Rock, uh, in other words, music by women in the Japanese scene that doesn't fit into the heavily produced uh, corporate marketed categories of girls bands or idols. And this is something we talk about in the interview. Uh, the book combines history, musical and lyrical exegesis, visual analysis, uh, and data uh, gleaned from interviews to create a layered portrait of an influential, important artist. And what we learn from this is that Shonen Knife is in many ways a study in contrasts uh, and in deliberately clashing aesthetics, mixing cute and cool, playing with gender roles and consumerism, uh, bending genres, appropriating orientalist stereotypes, uh, singing in English, etc. So as Okazaki shows, Shonen Knife's music, videos, uh, and onstage personality managed to be subversive and, in a word, punk. And as the title of Chapter 5 indicates, this is really a book about food, music, and transnational flow. All right, so uh, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for uh, agreeing to talk to us about your book. Um, as you probably know by now, we ask all of our authors uh, how you became interested in this project. And uh, spoiler alert and full disclosure for our audience, uh, we actually know each other. Uh, and I, I know that your sort of history with, uh, mu- you know, musical history mm-hmm. doesn't start with Shonen Knife. So I'm really curious uh, personally about how this, what this evolution is. Um, and if you could tell us about that, that'd be great. Sure. Well, thanks so much uh, for having me on your show. I really appreciate uh, the invitation and the chance to talk about Shonen Knife. Um, There's a lot of reasons about how I got interested in Shonen Knife that actually uh, predate 
uh, grad school. It goes all the way back to freshman year of college. I was uh, watching, uh, maybe some of your listeners remember, Toonami on Cartoon Network. And I was really into anime. And I was watching um, Powerpuff Girls. And during a commercial break, this this, uh, music video comes on featuring Powerpuff Girls. But it's this Japanese band, all women, singing this really cool rock song. And I'm a bass player by trade. So I was like really excited to see some female musicians up there. And I love, you know, love rock and roll. And at the end of the music video, it said Shonen Knife. And I was like, who are these people? Um, And so I've always, ever since that moment that, uh, you know, who knew it would be a pivotal moment in my musical career. But since that moment, I've always been interested in Shonen Knife, interested in the Japanese punk scene, but also like, you know, how, you know, women rock and roll artists too, not just in Japan, but in the United States and UK. Um, I'm a big Go-Go's fan also. Um, So that was sort of like the seed that became this book. And I talk a little bit about it in the introduction. Um, so when, uh, the head editor for Japan 33 and the third Noriko Manabe approached me about any ideas I might have for a submission, I was like, well, you know, I've always wanted to write something about shonen knife and food. And it wound up becoming under her, her aegis, um, a real book. Um, and it's really exciting to be a part of that series because she's, she's guided books on, um, like. Cowboy Bebop, and My Neighbor Totoro, and AKB48, Hatsune Miku, so on. So um, I'm really excited. The Shonen Knife is a little bit of an outlier in some ways, because it's it's not as mainstream as some of the other uh, book topics are. But I have found um, uh, in my research and in the post-publication, there's a lot of Shonen Knife fans out there, and it's a tight knit community. So I get emails from readers and, and like Facebook messages from readers being like, ah, "I loved your book," or "I'm so glad someone's finally writing something about Shonen Knife," which is really cool. Yeah, and so you, you've started to allude to this already, but one of the um, striking things about Shonen Knife is their sort of blend of cool and cute aesthetic, and, and you. Talk about this, uh, starting, in, of course, in the introduction, um, and it's something you come back to a number of times. Uh, and I think it's sort of really important to understanding the the fandom that you've started to talk about. Um, we're, we're, we're not quite into the chapters yet, but I wanted to, to just sort of talk about this. Uh, you mentioned, for example, in chapter two, uh, what you call, quote, unapologetic, tongue-in-cheek, cute, cool. Uh, mixed with a reclamation of cuteness. And when I thought what was interesting here is you said, you know, whether ironic or sincere. And I thought that was really kind of fascinating, right? Because it's it's a performance of, of cute, cool. And um, whether there's, you know, what some people call substance or ideology behind it, it has an effect, right? So, um, and, and you describe that effect as, as a kind of defiance um, and, and a reclamation of cuteness. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, you've hit on something um, really important uh, to this this cute, cool dichotomy that I break down, and that's the idea of performance. Um, I was really wary of calling these, like, sort of the cuteness aspect of Shonen Knife ironic, because ironic, as you know, has kind of a negative connotation in Japanese. Um, it's not something... Uh, hiniku is, like, it's not something that I would use to describe this music at all. Um but that being said, I think Naoko, the lead singer of Shonen Knife, and then the other members as they've rotated in and out are all very conscious of 
performing in a way that navigates these ideas of cuteness and coolness, especially when they're touring abroad in, say, the United States or Europe, um, and what it means to be a Japanese woman performing rock and roll on stage in, uh, in New York City is very, um, very complicated in some respects in terms of navigating those performances. So for me, I think what I, I want, I, I'm hoping readers take away is that it's not that they're being like superficially cute the way you might say AKB48 is. Not, not to diss AKB48, but it's a confection. Whereas I think Shonen Knife, it's much more related to an intermingling of these concepts that is remaining true to the band members as artists. And I think that is where the defiant aspect comes in, is that they're um, not uh, being manufactured by a certain... Um, record group or industry or even their manager and that since they've, they've always been true to themselves and I think that's that's what's really important and that's why uh, in that intro chapter two I talk about punk even though a lot of friends uh, and fans have brought up that they're not really they don't sound punk for a lot of their songs they don't sound like the Ramones or you know um, Dead Kennedys necessarily um, in a lot of ways but their aesthetics are punk and that's why I, I still code the I still call them like pop punk a lot in the book. Yeah, I thought, and that was actually uh, one of the really interesting things here, right? Is I think that you know they're they're also um, kind of genre bending in, in in some interesting ways, right? So they're playing with you know these kind of clashing genres and clashing aesthetics. Yeah. Um, and, and, and dare I say, I mean, it's there's a sort of. Uh, uh, the way I think they're using that cute, cool thing is, is, and if you'll forgive the pun, instrumental, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, there, there's a sort of a functionality to it. Um, mm-hmm. And another place that they're doing this, and this gets us to the other sort of main topic of the book, which is food, um, is in sort of a, 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 a repurposing or re- reclamation of uh, this sort of feminine domestic thing of food um, to create a, a challenging uh, narrative, yeah. right? Uh, and, and that's... Uh, uh, that's part of, I think, the coolness as well. Yeah, I totally agree with that assessment, Nathan. I think um, from my perspective, the initial reaction to food is that, oh, food is this thing that women perform in the domestic sphere. And then, um, you know, it takes on all these different meanings when you're singing in public spaces about food as a woman. Though I think it's a lot more than that, especially given the types of food they sing about, the types of songs they sing about. Um, But I do in many ways sort of like see the food as a topic, a lyrical topic as something that is really key to Shonen Knife um, and how they're engaging with ideas of gender only on a really uh, a subtle level. Yeah, and I think um, you know one of the, I guess my last comment on specifically that before we jump into the chapters mm-hmm, is that, yeah. that to me it seems that like uh, in the way that it's culturally coded, when food is punk, it's also gendered masculine, right? That like, yeah. and so so that's a sort of again an interesting um, cross current here between our sort of stereotypes mm-hmm. and images that that it seems to me that they're playing with, um, and they're doing so uh, within this. 
I, I guess you'd call it a genre that you're labeling Jose Rock or Jose mm-hmm. Rock. Um, and so chapter one, uh, you, you talk about what that is and give us a little bit of a kind of prehistory of the band. Um, can you tell us like what Jose Rock is, how it's different from like girls bands or idols um, and then get us into that uh, prehistory because um, you really go back to the 50s with uh, Misora Hibari, the 70s with the singer-songwriters, uh, Matsuya Yumi, uh, Pink Lady, The Candies, uh, etc. And you go through a lot of the different influences that Shonen Knife has, you know, from Elvis to the Beatles. You talked about the Ramones already. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how does that um, give us this Jose rap genre, um, Shonen Knife? Uh, and, and what's different about them? Um, there are other, of course, you know, uh, groups that fall into this category. You talked about um, Princess Princess, for example. Uh, but like, what makes Shonen Rock Shonen Rock? Or, excuse me, Shonen Knife Shonen Knife and Jose Rock Jose Rock. Sorry. <laughs> they are Shonen Rock City. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, there's so much to think about there. Um, I want to start at the beginning where you were commenting about uh, sort of like food having like these sort of like gendered auras too. And that was something that really struck me the first time I came to Japan where you have like ramen is this really kind of masculine food where the the lonely salary man goes and sits in his little ramen booth, eats his ramen and goes. Um, where he's, uh, they had the whole, like the, the cafe has the ginormous ice cream sundae, like godly huge, ungodly huge ice cream sundae that, you know, three or four different um, schoolgirls might get together and eat. And so this, this sort of like gendered coding of food in Japan was something that uh, really uh, surprised me the first time I was here. And then you see, you see this play out in like popular, Japanese popular culture too in manga and anime and stuff. So I think that was part of why I was always interested in like why Shonen Knife was writing songs about food. And they write songs about ramen. They write songs about ice cream. They write songs about cookies. They write songs about sushi. So it's it's all over the place, but each each way of seeing about food is a way of getting at different aspects of gender relations. I think um, for for them in their music, though, like I said, uh, it's it's subtle. It's not always conscious. I think, and I think the interesting thing about food and why Nalco keeps returning to it as a topic is because it has so many different layers of meaning. Um, it can be about food and just eating and enjoying it, but it can also be about all these other things, which I think is super cool. So um, going on to uh, the Joe Sayrock question. Yeah, this was um, something that really um, came up in, early in the book when I was writing it because every, you know, author that I was reading would call these girls bands. And there's a few reasons why I found like girls bands a problem that I didn't want to I didn't want to repeat that phrase um mostly because uh, a lot of the performers in these bands aren't girls they're they're women <laughs> they're past 20 years old um and I think to refer to like you know serious musicians as girls in a way is a little bit uh demeaning um like we wouldn't call it, I mean, I guess the Beatles might have been called a boys band at one time, but, you know, after Sgt. Pepper, we probably wouldn't call the Beatles a boys band. Um, so I was like, you know what, this should be something else. Um, and Jose seemed to be the right term, especially since I'm speaking specifically about Japanese female rockers, not um, you know, global female rockers. So, um, and then I used the term rock 
because it, I think it speaks to a really specific combination and aesthetic um, musically. So uh, it let me get a little bit more focused in terms of genre versus the phrase band. Uh, thinking about all the the groups that came before and that were contemporary to Shonen Knife 2 was really interesting as I digged into these because, you know, you mentioned uh, Nisori Hibari, who is like, you know, the goddess of Japanese popular music in the 20th century, pretty much. Like they just, I don't know if you saw the NHK special where they, they revived her with an animatronic that performs new songs. Oh, it's really good. You should see it. Um, she sings a song, uh, she sings a new song by the same guy who writes for Akibi for it, actually. Um, uh, but, like, yeah, she was singing Rockabilly at one point in the 50s uh, and with, with some other uh, women groups. Um, and, you know, of course, Yumin is another, you know, goddess of, of sort of the Japanese music industry from the 70s. Um, and it's really around that that's thanks to like, you know, really highly publicized female performers like Kibari, like Yumin, that I think in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, female rock groups were able to break through um, uh, and, you know, sort of, you know, latch on to some of the things that uh, the male-led groups were doing in Japan, but also, uh, you know, engage with audiences and, you know, perform publicly in ways that women, especially younger women, uh, women of marriageable age, I guess you could say, weren't weren't doing really before then. Um, so thing, bands like um, Princess Princess or Shoya uh, were really important, though I think Shonen Knife had a really special different uh, approach in that... Um, they always sort of like walk this fine line between like indiness and um, mainstreamness. Uh, and so there's this, they're not quite as avant-garde as say Mizutama Shobodan, but they're not as, you know, um, much of a pop idol group as Princess Princess was. Um, and I think because of that, really, it, it, interestingly, because of that, Shonen Knife was able to uh, really maintain a continuous performing and recording career well after a lot of their contemporaries in the early 80s have, have long disappeared. Some of these bands, you know, have been, have had, you know, one-off regroup performances, but none of them have had like the, the lifespan of Shonen Knife, who is going on 40 years of rockin' and rollin' this year. So I think that speaks to something really special about them. And of course, you know, I mentioned in the book too, around the 70s, 80s, you also have this global movement of female rockers um, taking off, um, like the Runaways, Heart, the Go-Go's, Blondie. Um, so in that respect, I identified the Jose Rock movement of Japan as being one part of this like sort of bigger movement um, in in um, female rock and roll, female made rock and roll. And then also, you know, in connection with that ideas about, um, you know, feminism in the political sphere as well. Um, in Japan, as you know, in the early eighties um, into the early nineties, you have the bubble economy. Women are um, going, more and more women are going on to higher education. More and more women are thinking about careers 
um, in the workplace uh, and, you know, pushing more for gender equality. Um, so I think that all these aspects kind of combine together to make the early 1980s uh, in Japan and in some ways around the world, like these kind of, it's kind of like fertile time and place for women rockers to emerge. Well, we're, we're off to a, a great start. You've uh, dissed AKB, compared Shonen Knife to the Beatles, uh, gave us a, a deep socio, socioeconomic analysis of the 80s and 90s uh, and gender politics, and we're only on chapter one. So this is good. This is good. I hope you don't um, get any hate mail. I, I don't, I don't, this AKB is interesting. It's interesting. I'm not disagreeing with you. Um, but I do, I want to, so I want to, uh, move on to chapter two. And we've already talked about um, some of the themes of chapter two specifically, right? Because mm-hmm. this is the chapter where uh, it, the chapter of food, gender, and music in post-war Japan, where you ask, uh, why are the members of Shonen Knife so concerned with food? Uh, and what are listeners, uh, we listeners, to make of this borderline obsession? Uh, does food have some symbolic importance? Um, and, and I wanted to, of course, you know, throw these questions right back at you. You've begun to address mm-hmm. this already, but is there anything you'd like to add to that that specifically comes out of this chapter? Yeah, you know, so obviously food has symbolic meaning, as I think, and I mentioned this earlier, gender roles. But also, um, I think food also has, you know, symbolic meaning in regards to national identity. And um, you and I have talked a little bit about this before. Uh, You know, one of the first things you think about when you think about national identity really is food. Um, uh, Pizza, Italy, um, Japan sushi probably is the thing to go to. Yeah, I'm teaching um, gastro diplomacy in my oh, graduate seminar yeah. tomorrow. So ah, that'll be fun. I hope there's some eating involved. Um, so I think there's it's really important. And for me, it was that kind of concept um, because you mentioned a little bit in the introduction. My real work has, or not my real work, but some of my other work has dealt with music and nationalism in, in modern Japan. So getting at how food and national identity and music are related was something really interesting to look at in the context of Shonen Knife instead of the context of like like classical Western music and opera um, in Japan. Um, so that was something that I was thinking I think is important. And then also uh, for Shonen Knife, I think the idea of food and consumerism uh, is, is really uh, important as well because uh, a lot of their songs are about like taking pleasure in food. And I mentioned this in the, the other, the later chapter where I parse out typologies. Um, consumerism in their case, especially consuming food and consuming food without being worried about, you know, what are people going to say? What is it going to, am I, am I going to be fat if I have this bite of chocolate, you know, kind of ideas, I think in some ways liberating where, you know, as the Marxist, Marxist critical theorist in me wants to be like consumerism is bad, but like in the case of Shonen Knife, it's almost like consumerism is a form of liberty. Um, it's almost like a form of active rejection of, uh, of sort of requirements, especially requirements of women to be restrained, to be, you know, um, not, not overly enjoying sensual pleasures of eating um, and such. So those were things that all struck me uh, about this return, this continual return in like all their albums to the topic of food. 
Yeah, that's that sort of subversiveness uh, of the way that they're using food seem to uh, fit with the larger sort of questions of you know how to uh, reclaim and repurpose cute and cool and how to you know, bend genres and be punk while not exactly playing in the key of punk, etc. Um, but you do uh, in the next chapter uh, talk about songs in the key of food, right? And so you're continuing. Yeah. Obviously, this is the the big thing here. Um, and I thought this was interesting. You give us a, a typology of food songs uh, that Sean and Knife does. So I'd love it if you could uh, give us a quick rundown of that. Um, and then you give some some much more detailed exegesis, you know, from some some of these examples of you know different songs from these categories. Um, I, I wonder if you could uh, tell us about one of these. I think maybe the the most interesting one for me was uh, I want to eat chocolate bars. Uh, if you could tell yeah. us a little bit about that song and how it fits into this typology. Sure. Well, uh, the first thing I will say while I'm still thinking about it is that anyone, if you haven't listened to these songs, I have a YouTube playlist uh, that is under the same title as the book, Shonen Knife's Happy Hour Food, Gender, Rock and Roll, where you can hear all the songs I talk about in the playlist. Um, so, yeah, I when I was just listening through the different albums, which is a lot, um, Something that stuck out to me is that I wanted to kind of create categories of songs. Like, what are these? How are these songs similar? How are these songs different? Like, where do I parse them out in terms of food? And at first, I was like, well, we could do healthy foods and unhealthy foods. And I'm like, ah, that doesn't really focus on the musical aspect or how they're they're being used. So uh, I parsed them out in a few different ways. Um, the first was like songs about body image or dealing with sort of like body image ideas. Um, the second one, second, like sort of type I identified was outliers, just wacky songs where food is in there, but it doesn't seem to have like, uh, the same sort of function as, as the body image songs or the last kind of typology that I identify, which is sort of songs that are about enjoying eating and consuming either as an individual or a group. So in the first, uh, type, uh, I, uh, you know, talk about um, diet run and heavy song because uh, they both deal with with uh, being thin, with being this ideal size and shape. And these are really um, uncommon in Shonen Knife's output. I also uh, talk about Twist Barbie in that section just because I love Twist Barbie. It's one of their early hits. It's so good. And I feel like you can't talk about Barbie and not have some sort of connection to body image. Um, even in Japan, where you have, you know, all sorts of interesting um, things happening with ideals of Western beauty and ideals of Japanese beauty uh, intersecting with these little, you know, dolls. Um, for outliers, people might be most familiar with uh, the song Tomato Head, which was on uh, Beavis and Butthead way back in the day. They did not know what to make of this music video. <laughs> um, and... Uh, it's still something I'm trying to figure out today, but I love it. It's definitely in Shonen Knight's grunge phase. Um, if you take a listen to it, um, they played it on a late night with Conan O'Brien at one point too, and he seemed uh, flummoxed. <laughs> um, Cannibal Papaya is another great one I put in this outliers category. Um, an early that's an early tune uh, pinned by Michie, the bass player, the original Shonen Knight bass player. Um, but again, it's like I don't know what the food component is exactly doing here so this is definitely food um uh but the last category like just enjoying food seeing about how much they love it how delicious it is to eat that is like almost 
uh, you know, almost every album has a song like that on there. Um, and I talked a little bit about the importance, I think, of like liberated or subversive consumerism that I think a lot of these songs um, get across. Uh, and, you know, uh, things like chocolate, I, I like, I want to eat taco bars from Free Little Baca Guy is an early example of one of these kinds of songs. Um, in terms of music, it's, you know, really pared down. It's just vocals, drums are mixed really loud. It's got some um, uh, high guitars, some keyboard. Um, and it's really just an ABA structure for verse, chorus, verse. Um, but what's really interesting about it is that it mixes English and Japanese. I think that's one of the things that stood out to me first uh, because the cor the verse is in English and then the chorus is... Um, Daisuki, tabetai, I love, I want to eat. Um, so uh, for me, that's a moment where you see Shonen Knife doing this pivot where they're mixing these two different languages, um, which I find really important um, because Shonen Knife uh, has, you know, really is, since around the mid to late 80s, like found their niche not so much in uh, limiting themselves to like the Japanese sort of um, audience, but really branching out into uh, the sort of like global, global like listenership, specifically um, English language listenership. Um, so, and I think that's something that speaks that maybe we'll get to a little bit later on down the road about um, how music and transnationalism and food all work together too. Um, and getting back to, you know, to that concept, chocolate, uh, that was a really fun tune to write about because it made me track down the history of chocolate um, in Japan, which was super fascinating. Um, like, I think uh, I went to the Morinaga website and all these different chocolate company websites and, you know, discovered one of the earliest introductions of chocolate to Japan was, uh, I think, a Dutch trader paying a prostitute in chocolate. I was like, whoa, that's that's amazing. And then, you know, they're writing this song in the 80s when, you know, uh, Valentine's Day and Giri Choco and White Day are all being, corp you know, corporatized and made a thing. Um, so even though this song is just, you know, like about, I want to eat taco bars, it's, it's got all these different subtexts to it that you wouldn't think about just listening to it, but um, I think are there and really interesting to think about and make the song um, uh, richer and more delicious. <laughs> Indeed, uh, as, as, as befits a, a song about chocolate. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, one, of the, one of the things you just mentioned there uh, is the sort of uh, pivot that Shonen Knife does to an international sort of global, particularly English language audience. And in, in that sense, um, I thought that uh, chapter four, which is an introduction to Happy Hour 1998 and its cover art, actually fits into this in an interesting way, right? Because the, yeah. the artist is... Uh, a friend of uh, Murakami Takashi, uh, who's named uh, Nara Yoshitomo. And he's an, he, like Murakami, is this sort of internationally known audience. Mm -hmm. um, and Happy Hour, if I'm understanding it, is like the moment, uh, the sort of critical point at which uh, Shonen Knife really goes international, right? And so I thought it's mm -hmm. sort of A, interesting that you have a whole chapter about cover art, um, and B, that the artist is this sort of internationally uh, positioned and known artist. Um, so, yeah, you describe the 
the, the cover art um, as simple and brimming with de- uh, depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, as a, and, and think of that like in the same way uh, as being sort of analog- analogous to Shonen Knife's music. Um, so can you tell us about the cover art, uh, what was interesting about it to you uh, and, and sort of why you thought it was worth, you know, a whole chapter here um, and what, how it fits with this musical aesthetic uh, of Shonen Knife. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love Nara Yoshitomo is so interesting and his career really, like the, his design for the album art for Happy Hour was like right on this cusp of him sort of exploding into like the global like art world too, which was really cool. Um, so he actually, he approached Shonen Knife at a show in England because he, I think he was living in England at the time and he approached them about doing a cover for them, not the other way around. And, you know, Naoko's like, yeah, sure, you know, whatever. And it wound up being this cover, um, which is super cool. Just the connections music between the music and art, um, world in terms of fandom, I think. Now his um, artwork is really uh, something that's always struck me because it features uh, very commonly little girls, um, but they don't look realistic at all. They're more like little doll dolls. They almost look like rag dolls with really big eyes, um, you know, just the mitten hands and stuff. But they're doing, you know, things like holding a knife or smoking a cigarette, very rarely smiling. Usually they're frowning at, you know, sort of the viewer. So his images capture um, a lot of the components, I think, of that that cute, cool combination that Shonen Knife embodies. Um, And that you have this sort of like cute little doll girl doing these things that are, well, kind of kind of hardcore or cool or or however you want to you want to put it. Um, uh, So that was something that I found um, really connecting. his artwork visually to Shona Knife's music, especially since like, you know, a lot of his drawings and paintings don't look super complicated. They're not busy. Um, but, uh, and like, likewise, a lot of people, you know, who just listen to Shona Knife's music superficially are like, Oh, this is, you know, just, you know, a boring pop rock song. Um, why are they singing about banana chips a lot? Uh, but if you think a little bit more about it, there's like, you know, some deeper connections. Um, and something really cool about Nara uh, Yoshitomo also is that he's continued to do artwork for lots of different bands, um, both in the like Japanese indie scene and also uh, more broadly. Um, and he has a whole history of really being into music, really being um, uh, you know, into punk, especially. Um, and so like Shonen Knife, I think his artwork and his approach to art um, is, is is characteristic of this punk aesthetic, the DIY kind of do what you got to do and be true to yourself. Yeah, and I thought this was uh, you know, personally, I, I found this interesting. You know, the 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 sort of uh, sensual experience of food, the audio experience of music, and then you know your focus here on the visual experience of. Mm the album cover was kind of interesting thinking about, you know, Shonen Knife as something more than a band and more than, than music, just in that, you know, sense Mm -hmm. of things that come into our ears. Well, and that's a great point. Um, The visual aspect um, is, is something that's really important because I think, you know, Shonen Knife, part of their, 
there's so much, uh, so much of their work is done in the live touring circuit. They are some of the hardest working women in show business, I would say. Like, like they did some crazy year and a half tour for their adventure, Ramen Rock, like touring Europe, touring the United States, touring Australia, New Zealand, um, you know, performing a lot on the road, a lot. And it's not like they're touring in these posh, you know, conditions where they only have brown M&Ms in the bowl or something like that. Um, so they're very much aware of sort of like the image they present when they tour, because that's so much a part of like their career and their, how they engage with the fan base. And, you know, um, getting back to that idea of cuteness, like, you know, they're always wearing like usually retro dresses at some point, but there'll also be a costume change for the, uh, for the end of the show where they're in jeans and t-shirts and, you know, they're really comfortable either way. And something that's kind of fascinating compared to Nara's images that he paints is that Shona and I, a lot of them are like smiling the whole show. Um, and when you're listening to their music and you see these women smiling, it's just, you know, really hard not to be happy too. And I think that's one of the others that a lot of fans identify. Like, this is happy music made by happy people who are like, you know, excited to be playing music still. Yeah, which, as you point out, in, in the uh, 40th anniversary year is an impressive thing. Um, yeah. yeah. So I wanted to uh, move on to Chapter 5, where you really dig into the 1988 album, Happy mm-hmm. Hour. Um, and the, uh, the title of the chapter is Happy Hour, Food, Music, and Transnational Flow. And you mm-hmm. start out by saying, uh, quote, food, like Shonen Knife's music, exemplifies a transnational flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us more w- about what you mean there. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is where it gets thorny, isn't it? Um, well, so I want to talk a little bit about Shonen Knife in the international sphere uh, first, if you'll, you'll allow me. So um, they came, they did their first show in the United States in 1989, I believe, and they were um, actually working with uh, Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth on that show in uh, L.A., and then in 1991, I want to say they, they did a tour. They actually toured with Nirvana. And that was, you know, something where, uh, you know, was seen as like a, a turning point for their career um, in some respects. They started to get a lot more airplay on indie rock and roll, college rock and roll stations in the United States. Um, and really got pretty big. They had just wrapped up a tour when uh, at the end of the 90s, I think 96, 97, um, and came back and release this album. Um, so this was, you know, sort of a critical moment where Shonen Knife, again, is like, um, I talked about Choco Bars as being that pivot, a pivot moment, but Happy Hour is really this this time where they're turning to more and more um, English language audience. They recorded a few songs in both English and Japanese on this album, um, which is something they stopped doing in later albums. Um, pretty much all their later albums are in English exclusively. So you still have in this moment um, this sort of like international aspect to it. I'm getting to transnational flow, though, as you stated. So this is a concept that probably means something a little different to everyone. Um, but for me, I think of it as a kind of feedback loop um, of continual exchange. So um, 
I use a lot of examples in food in the book. Um, food, uh, for example, like you know, talk about sushi uh, in particular uh, is something that was a Japanese cuisine uh, comes to America in, in a lot of different ways via um, Japanese Americans and also you know importing culture in the 1980s, especially. Um, and then you get all these new spins on sushi in the United States, like uh, the Philly roll, for example, which I was very sad to discover does not exist in Japan. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you have nowadays you have all these kinds of crazy, crazy makis going on in America. Um, but it's a way, uh, but some of them, like uh, a Spam Musubi, for example, this was another one of my favorites, has, has made, is, you know, back in uh, Japan. Um, California roll is definitely something that's known in Japan. Now, so you have sort of this, this exchange that's going on in terms of, of foods. And um, music's kind of similar in that respect, in that, you know, uh, people say, you know, oh, punk is, punk rock is, you know, from the United States, it's from the UK, but it gets imported and listened to by lots of different peoples around the world. In the case of Japan, you have, um, you know, uh, these three women from Osaka listening to their bones, playing uh, with that format and style and sound and developing their own aesthetic around that. Uh, and then actually winding up getting big in the United States um, and uh, other places. So uh, it's kind of this continual like exchange uh, in both terms of foods and musics. And, you know, these are just really specific examples that I think are true of sort of like more, more broadly music and food more broadly. Um, you know, pizza is another great example because, oh my gosh, the pizza here is a little different from the pizza in America. Or today, I love my mother-in-law, but she brought me, and she brought me, she's like, oh, I brought lunch. I got these great sandwiches. And the sandwich had a potato salad inside it. And I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> but this is a Japanese version of a sandwich and combining these Western ingredients, but reformatting them in a way that is, it's quintessentially Japanese. <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, the corn on the pizza phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, yeah, since you mentioned uh, sushi, I want to talk about the sushi bar song on yeah. Happy Hour. Uh, and um, you know, you're you're careful to point out it's not you know sort of a national song about sushi, but that it is this sort of like transnational thing. And you talk and you you say, uh, but I want to hold you to it. Um, that it's interesting to consider the deeper implications mm -hmm. of what on the surface seems to be a simple song about raw fish. So deeper, deeper implications, uh, go for it, especially because you talk then about how that they there's transnational gastro diplomacy, gender mm -hmm. roles, culture, education, musical exchange, and of course, a bit of nationalism sprinkled in there. Yeah. Um, so, so tell us about this song and, and what it means to you. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, sort of like, you know, what I was saying is that uh, earlier in our conversation, Sushi is probably the main sort of food that represents the Japanese nation, sort of the global, the, the Japanese nation in the global imagination. Would you would you agree with that? Is that is that a fair assumption? I, I mean, I, yeah, I think that's fair. I, yeah. I feel like yeah. if people, you know, in the United States had to say Japanese food, they would probably say sushi. Yeah, um, I, I mean, the only thing that comes close is probably ramen. Yeah, yeah, cup noodles. Um, it's a tough call. They have songs about both of them. So uh, anyway, I don't think you can talk about sushi without 
in some ways getting at ideas of nationalism. But I don't think that's at the forefront of this song. Um, but I think this like this transnational aspect that I was talking about is, um, especially since um, when I interviewed Naoko, she was saying, oh, yeah, that was inspired by going to a sushi bar in the 90s in Dallas, Texas. And I was like, what? How is this? They had a sushi bar in the 90s in Dallas? And she was like, yeah, it wasn't bad, except they served the miso as the first course instead of like with the sushi. So they wouldn't bring their sushi out until they had all finished their miso and everyone was not drinking their miso because they were like, oh, we're going to get our sushi and we'll have it together. So that was really a funny thing. And that's why she kind of wanted to uh, talk about this song, like do this song as kind of in some ways like an instructional <laughs> guidance um, for people. Also having green tea with your sushi is really important. Um, she pointed out um, uh, for health reasons and such. Um, but it does, it gets at this idea that, uh, you know, sushi is, um, is this international or, tra you know, is something that is very like much considered Jap part of Japanese culture, but it's also something that can work in all these different ways. Um, uh, I'm to think more. Oh yeah, and gender roles. Thinking about gender roles, you know, um, I'm not. I'm not sure how many of your listeners out there are familiar with sushi chefdom, but uh, it's still quite strict in Japan, where women aren't allowed to become sushi chefs. In fact, uh, I was only able to locate one um, working in Tokyo, um, and she's kind of famous because she's a female um, sushi chef. And that's something that I thought was really interesting because, um, you know, sometimes Shonen Knife has faced similar uh, biases in that, you know, there are women playing this rock and roll um, in these little clubs sometimes. Uh, you know, I saw them uh, in the Eraserhood in Philly, <laughs> which was pretty dank. Um, you know, and sort of like, what does it mean to be, you know, an Asian woman going into these spaces that are historically dominated by men? Um, it's something that I think is was really important. And I, I don't know if Sushi Barzan is getting at that necessarily. Con well, I don't think it's getting at it consciously, but I think there are, like I said, these these implications to it. If you think a little bit more about about the tune that um, make it a, a richer, richer song, a, make for richer understanding and appreciation. Um, so that's, that was yeah, my and I, Yeah, and I think, um, you know, you mentioned the sushi chef things. I just wanted to, to, to add something to that, which is that, you know, it's fascinating that uh, women work in, uh, how, to, how to explain this, sort of like in all, in all other aspects mm -hmm. of the uh, food industry, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in all uh, other uh, sort of levels of sushi production, except actually like being the itamae-san, the, yeah. the sushi chef, right? Yeah. Um, and in the same, and it's the same sort of same weird dynamic to me where, uh, you know, women are working in all aspects of, of showbiz. And then there's this weird thing that happens when you put them on stage that all of a sudden there's like a totally different meaning to it and people's uh, implicit and explicit biases mm -hmm. start working on that. So I, I thought that was, you know, that's a sort of interesting analogy there. 
Um, so you get into uh, into the weeds of some of the other songs here, uh, Gilza, uh, mm-hmm. Hot Chocolate, um, and Cookie Day, which I don't know. I, every time I say that, it makes me laugh. But um, yeah, you know, so you, you talk about sort of leaning into Orientalism to reclaim agency, and that mm-hmm. reminds me of sort of you know what you've said about leaning into cuteness mm-hmm. um, and leaning into the sort of punk aesthetic, um, and. Uh, you know, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Cookie Day uh, and and why that song, it, you know, what it's doing, like what's important about it. Oh, you want to talk about Cookie Day? Okay, that's great. I'll talk about Cookie Day. Um, <laughs> I was all fixed to talk about gyoza. Um, Either one. We can talk about gyoza too, or cookie. We can talk about both. Oh, I'm going to want cookies though. Ah. Um, so uh, getting to this idea uh, about leaning into Orientalism as something... Um, that actually, uh, uh, Hosokawa Shuhei talks about it in regards to Yellow Magic Orchestra, which is another uh, really f- well-known Japanese um, pop band from well, around the same time as Shonen. I think they were. I think YMO was from the mid '70s, but around they were popular in the '80s. You know, Sakamoto, Yuichi, um, Hosono. Uh, all these really you know, mainstream, like big artists nowadays. Um, also, in their their work with the Elementary Orchestra, you know, take these ideas of what what the rest of the world expects or perceives of Japan to be or Asia to be and represent, especially as it's portrayed in sort of you know Western he- Hollywood popular culture and so on, and um, takes those ideas and sort of turns them on their head in a way that says, look, this is maybe what you're saying about us, but we're going to take this and flip it over backwards and make it our own. And in reclaiming that, um, you know, sort of re- reacquire agency. Uh, is it Difficult concept to pull apart. Um, I think Gyoza does maybe a more blatant job of it as a song because Gyoza uses sort of those stereotypical music tropes like the the pentatonic um, scale and high register guitar riff and a gong even. There are all, you know, elements that you hear from um, that song Kung Fu Fighting or uh, David Bowie's China Girl. You know, those sort of like stereotypes of Asia but then you have when you have three Asian women singing and using these stereotypes it it transforms it into something else that I think is a kind of um, mm, I'm gonna say a revamp or reimagination of it but it's it's something different um, but it's also complicated because they talk about gyoza as something being imported from China. Gyoza actually came from China post-war era when soldiers were coming home from mainland. Um, so that there's like that dynamic to it. But now also gyoza are something that's transformed into a very much part of the Japanese cuisine. Um, you know, there's a ton of gyoza shops around everywhere and gyoza chains. So it's not like seen as something separate from i think japanese eating you know on a normal basis um cookie yeah, so is a little different but yeah 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think this, 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 uh, you know, gyoza as transnational flow and sort of how that mm-hmm. fits into uh, the the music, but also the the history and social context uh, is uh, one of the things that you're able to bring out in, in this chapter. Yeah, um, yeah and that, that that takes us though to a song that you've uh, implicitly referenced before, oh, yeah. uh, which becomes the subject of uh, chapter six, uh, banana chips. Uh, mm. which is the the single from Happy Hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you talk about in chapter six, the delicious banality of banana chips. Um, it's, as you say, an homage to both the Ramones and the Beatles, who we've already given a shout out to here um, as big influences on uh, Sean and Knife. But um, here it's it's not cuteness and coolness, but cuteness and absurdity that are sort mm-hmm. of uh, clashing and mixing here. Um, so yeah, as you said, you, you have this curated uh, YouTube list. Uh, and yes, I went down the rabbit hole uh, and was reminded of <laughs> this video. Um, so what's with the banana chips? Uh, what are they doing? Um, and what's so important about the video, which I mean, you give quite a detailed sort of blow yeah. by blow of the video. So I wonder if you could tell us about that again, because I think you're pointing to the um, the, the the multimedia and multisensory mm-hmm. sort of aspect of Shonen Knife as an artist. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, so the banana chips. Uh, it's a song they seen like almost like every live show I've been to. They seen banana chips. Uh, it gets a big, it's a big crowd pleaser. Um, I think uh, what I was talking about when I was talking about absurdity, I was talking about the repetition of banana chips because they say banana chips like twelve times in a row. the The chorus is just banana chips. Um, uh, so it's a lot of banana chips that are happening. <laughs> and I think in that repetition, it becomes, um, it's so much that it become it hits the point of absurdity, where it's almost like avant-garde levels of absurdity in the repetition. But I also think it gestures towards that idea of um, repetitive consumerism. But it's not um, this mindless consumerism, the, the sort of enunciating singer position is in love like she she really enjoys her banana chips and she doesn't feel guilty about it either uh she's gonna have them day or night um and i think that's that was sort of the takeaway to just you know be like let's just roll around and lavish in this happiness that is banana chips in this case um and it's okay it's okay you don't have to be worried about what people think like uh, about you for eating banana chips, you don't have to worry. If you like something, go for it. If, if what you like is banana chips, that's fine. If you want to play guitar, that's cool too. Um, don't pay attention to what other people think. Just just do it. Um, so that was what I think I I wanted to get at. And then sort of the other point of like the the banality of it, like banana chips are just this like you know really simple thing that you can get at the grocery store, convenience store here. Um, and so the fact that this the sort of I in, um, uh, or like the singing, the singing voice is uh, about uh, you know enjoying something that's pretty everyday, pretty mundane. It but enjoying it to this like level of happiness and glee is is inspiring because well if, if say uh, Naoko can enjoy banana chips this much. What are sort of the everyday things in my life that I could find this much pleasure in? Um, so that was something that I think is really important about this song. And I think maybe why 
it's such a pleaser, not on, you know, just sort of the aesthetic level of the music is really catchy, but also the idea that there's these simple, simple things in our lives. And if we just focus on those, we can find happiness, um, even in the darkest of times. Um, Maybe really optimistic of me, but I think that's the appeal of Shonen Knife is the optimism. Yeah, um, and, and I thought there was a sort of, you know, I don't know whether to call it Buddhism or pop Buddhism, but mm-hmm. a, a sort of feeling that like, you know, once you've achieved in, enlightenment, you know, it just, you can revel in a sort of purity of emotion. And that this like, yeah. what you're, what, what it seems that you're sort of describing is that like, we're all, you know, sl- we talk about being sort of slaves to consumerism and so on and so forth. But mm-hmm. at a certain point, if you can kind of push past that and receive, you know, con- uh, achieve a sort of consumerist or consumer enlightenment, mm-hmm. that beyond that, there's actually this place of sort of pure, you know, joyful play or something like that. Uh, is that, I mean, is that a, a fair sort of reading? of? Yeah, that's of, what, okay. I think that's what I'm getting at here is that, you know, we could feel bad for enjoying a bag of banana chips or we can be like, Hey, I really enjoyed that bag of banana chips and it made me happy. And that's okay. I don't have to feel bad about it. Like, like, I think that's cool. (laughs) Um, um, And I think especially, you know, uh, you know, to go back to sort of the gender thing, so much of I being a woman, at least in my experience has been like feeling guilty about enjoying food. And a lot of Shonen Knife songs are not about, are about like, you know, getting past, like enjoying eating your food and it's okay to enjoy eating your food and not feel guilty about it. So I thought that was really cool. Um, Talking about the video, which you mentioned earlier. So sometimes I wonder if I went too far with trying to do this video analysis. So I'm, um, I'm actually a film music scholar and I've done a lot of work with Godzilla films and Kurosawa films. Um, but I've never done a music video analysis. Um, so part of this was actually just sort of like a self-challenge. What What's it like to do a music video analysis versus a film? And um, as a result, I found myself looking a lot more closely at the design uh, aspects, the visual aspects, and the editing aspects of the, the, the music video. And um, what's really cool about the video, part of why I do pay attention to it so much is because it uses the same designs um, as the Happy Hour cover art from from Nara. So you have these three um, sort of shonen knife avatars of uh, Naoko, Atsuko, and Mitie um, that look like these Nara Yoshitomo dolls, but they go around um, to different parts of town um, playing their rock show for a group of bananas and then, you know, zapping bananas with their laser eye beams. Um, so they're doing like, you know, they look really, really cute, but they're doing these like pretty cool things like like rocking out and, you know, uh, using laser beams to get what they want. And in that sense, it, it sort of brings me back to like the, I think, you know, maybe subconsciously, this is one of the things too, is like, uh, um, it's very, very similar to some Powerpuff Girl episodes and stuff in that respect, too. Um, to the degree that I think Powerpuff Girls have, like, laser high beams at some point also. So, Well, uh, unfortunately, I cannot verify that. Uh, oh. That's not my pop cultural experience. Ah. Uh, I apologize. 
Um, but I, I do want to I want to I want to pick up on this thing you said about optimism mm-hmm. uh, as a sort of characteristic, right? Because this is something that, in, in fact, I think you talk about in chapter seven in the final chapter mm-hmm. of the book, um, which is sweet candy power, Shonen Knife's Jose Rock legacy, right? And so here you're, you know, you started off talking about the history, sort of the pre the precursors to and contemporaries of uh, Shonen Knife, and then this final chapter, we wrap up with the sort of state of Jose Rock in the, the noughties and into the 2010s, yeah. I guess. Um, some of the artists, uh, you talk about baby metal, you talk about scandal. These are a little bit more, I think, mm-hmm. familiar to certainly to me, and I think a little, a little bit more mainstream. Uh, Otoboke Beaver, uh, a little bit maybe less well known, mm-hmm. um, but a great example, I think, of how uh, the scene is quite diverse right and mm-hmm. as you say um it's it ranges from the corporate sponsored juxtap- juxtaposition between hyper cute and hardcore to and this is ultimately beaver the downright dark bravely creative unapologetically abrasive and completely cool which mm-hmm. by the way i think was a, an excellent uh, uh summary um and and so in this sense you know the sort of optimism and cool cute cute cool uh, of shonen knife is distinctive mm-hmm. um but one thing that sort of unites them, and I thought this was fascinating, is that food comes up in a lot of the lyrics of these sort yeah. of Jose Rock artists. Um, can you tell us a little bit about them and about why you think uh, that food is important for them as well? Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about uh, Baby Metal's song about food, about chocolate. Uh, uh, is it Gimme Gimme Chocolate? Is that this what it's called? Gimme Gimme It's a great track uh, if you haven't checked it out um lately um so that was one that was really interesting to look at in comparison with i want to eat taco bars especially because of the chocolate connection and gimme gimme chocolate is one is a song where like the lyrics um deal more with like oh i'm worried about weight gain what if i get fat from eating chocolate versus um the shonen knife song where they're like i just love chocolate and um i want to eat it and I thought that was a really interesting comparison to make, especially since um, Baby Metal <laughs> obviously really takes the sort of cute, cool dichotomy to its absolute extremes. And that's kind of the allure of Baby Metal is that you have the super, super cute singers um, and then the super, super hardcore, heavy sort of new metal accompaniment to them. Um, but they're still like finding, you know, ways of talking about food and how it engages with you know, notions of gender, um, what it means to be like, uh, you know, sort of images of like femininity um, and consumption that I thought, consumerism that I thought was really interesting. Um, Otoboki Beaver, on the other hand, is very different engagement with food. Uh, super cool. I'm <laughs> from the looks of it, it, looks like you saw their music video. <laughs> um, their song, uh, Anata Atashi o Daita Tono Yome no Meshi. Um, I just call it Yome no Meshi. It's saying it uh, means, um, after you make love to me, you eat your wife's meal. Um, is just this killer track, a lot of screaming, um, some very heavy thrashing going on. Um, uh, at some points, but uh, in their music video, uh, you can see how they're playing with uh, these ideas of you know, coolness and feminism too. In it, like uh, the, the band members are wearing wedding dresses that get dirtier and dirtier as they have this food fight, um, and they seen in that song about um, you know how 
how this woman that uh, sort of a guy is having an affair with, how she's been turned into a meal. She's being treated like food herself, um, food that's, you know, past its shelf date even, and how he he comes and has her, and then he goes back, but he, and he's his wife's food. So he's like not really the, the guy is not, you know, someone. Uh, he He's the consumer, but in the end uh, of the song, she's like, you're not going to make a meal out of me. I'm not going to be consumed in that way anymore. And I think that's really cool sort of metaphors of food and sexual relationships that is maybe a little more common really in, um, you know, uh, a lot of sort of English language music that deals with food usually draws these like eating and sex are, are connected in some way because it's sort of a sensual pleasure, I think, aspect of it. Um, so uh, Otawaki Fever, you know, gets into that that kind of relationship, but they do it in a way that's so specific to them as a group. Like my favorite part of that song is when they're chanting "Sex Shivazuke Rock and Roll," "Sex Shivazuke Rock and Roll," and "Shivazuke" are these um, Kyoto Purple Pickles. So they're a Kyoto Kansai-based band. Um, formed uh, as part of the Ritsumeikan University Music Club. Um, so they're able to insert these sort of like things that are very specific to them into this like broader discussion of food and music and relationships that um, is very, very different from Shonen Knife. Shonen Knife never, I have not encountered a Shonen Knife that deals with sex ever, and I don't think I ever will. They have very, very few songs that even talk about like liking or loving somebody unless that somebody happens to be a chocolate bar or a uh, piece of cake. Um, <laughs> or a banana chip. Or a banana chip. Um, so it's really interesting. But I think all these groups, even, you know, Baby Metal, Otoboki Viva, um, I think these groups all ha- have some sort of debt to, like, the work that Shonen Knife has done to keep women rock and roll artists in the sort of public sphere in Japan um, over the last four decades. It's, it's really... Uh, super super impressive to me in, in that respect yeah i think one of the uh things that you you just brought out in the you know conversation here about otoboke beaver in particular and, and this sort of contrast with shonen life um is that you know because food is such uh an important aspect of um our interpersonal relationships um and because it has a strong association with you know sort of visceral or hedonistic pleasure, uh, as well as its sort of life-sustaining properties, it can also be a really powerful symbol of alienation, right? And I, I mean, mm-hmm. it seemed to me that that's a lot of sort of where, um, you know, Otoboke Beaver is taking it that Shonen Knife isn't. And I guess that speaks to the sort of optimism versus mm-hmm. whatever it is that Otoboke Beaver is doing um, kind of dichotomy, which again, speaks to that diversity that I think you're trying to bring out here in the chapter. Um, one of the other things that, that I just wanted to, to get to, to make sure to make sure we get to um, before we uh, begin to wrap up here mm-hmm. is you talk about, um, and you, you mentioned this sort of offhand before, but you were able to interview uh, some of the members of Sean and Knife mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and also uh, musicians inspired by them. Um, and yeah, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what they said about the influence of Sean and Knife on their own uh, careers. Yeah, so I talked to... Um... The Knife Collectors, which are this uh, cover band group uh, based out of Yokohama, Tokyo area, um, that are very specifically a Shonen Knife cover band. Um, and they're friends with um, 
uh, Shonen Knife as well, which is really interesting. And then Brinky is the other band I talked to. Um, and, and they're a group, a family band, uh, start off as a family band. Um, and uh, actually their drummer, Risa, uh, is now the current drummer for Shonen Knife. So there's these neat connections between these two bands and Shonen Knife that I wanted to like bring up in, in the chapter. Um, both of them, when I talked to Knife Collectors and Brinky, mo- both of the groups were talking about um, how much they like the food songs for Shonen Knife, um, because food songs are, are uh, easy easy to sing in a lot of respects, because everyone um, knows food. Everyone likes food, um, wherever you're from. And I think this kind of gets at the, you know, sort of the conclusion I, I talk about, like, uh, food is has this like global appeal to it because it's something that we all have to do as human beings is eat and not everyone, but most everyone takes pleasure, some pleasure in eating too. So um, when I talked to Brinky and knife collectors, they were like, you know, this food makes people happy and music, this music uh, about food can make people happy. And that's the real appeal of it. You can't feel sad when you're listening to this. Um, and so, uh, that's why those, those groups like to cover food songs or Brinky in their case have written several food songs, uh, sort of inspired by Shonen Knife and, um, continue to perform. Yeah. And that actually, uh, segues really nicely into the food that most, you know, so many people like the most, which is dessert. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wonder if you could just tell us about, uh, ice cream cookie sandwiches to, uh, uh take us I, out here. Well, uh, the the delicacy is delicious. I can attest to that. Um, the song too is very yummy. It's one of the most recent tracks from their last album, Sweet Candy Power, that came out. Oh my gosh, was it twenty nineteen? Yeah, I don't. Twenty twenty is a blur to me right now, so it must have been twenty nineteen. <laughs> um, I think. Uh, but anyway, uh, ice cream cookie sandwiches is uh, this tune that Risa sings on Sweet Candy Power. Um, and it's so neat because, you know, um, one of the coolest parts about that song um, for me is how the vocal harmonies lay out, are, are parsed out in the, um, the chorus. Uh, and, uh, and sort of like in these echoings of the, there's the main vocal line and then um, sort of like accompanying vocal line. And because they parse out in three parts, and uh, I feel like these three parts come to represent sort of the cookie, the ice cream, and the combinatory cookie sandwich, um, which is just a really cool musical metaphor for this like delicacy. Uh, and it's one of those little ways that Shonen Knife just manages to make, you know, the music work so well with the topic of food. And now I'm very excited to eat ice cream after this conversation. Well, I, I, of course, wouldn't want to keep you from that. So I guess we will uh, wrap up. And um, I wanted to just, you know, uh, thank you for spending the time with us uh, to talk about your work. I'm also, I think I'm going to go get some lunch now. Um, but it was uh, it was great to talk to you. And I hope we'll have you back uh, sometime in the future. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting to get to talk about Shonen Knife uh, with you and food and um, just everything. I'm so, I'm, yeah, it's a real honor to be here. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you.